Good morning. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 15, the 15th Psalm, which will be the focus of our attention this morning. Please listen as I read to you these words. A Psalm of David. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. May God's blessing be on this reading from his holy word. In commenting on this psalm, John Calvin suggests a possible occasion and setting for its composition. He surmises that perhaps David watched as throngs of Israelites approached the tabernacle of God, knowing that many were hypocrites and that others were genuine followers of the Lord, he poses the questions that are found in verse 1. You see, the king, David, knew that not all Israel was true Israel. Even though they were all by birth members of the covenant community, many were in fact covenant breakers. Their lips spoke of the Lord. Their bodies performed all of the necessary and appropriate actions towards the Lord, but their hearts were far from him. And so David contemplates these questions. Who is it that rightly approaches God? Now, here's my outline. Point one, the question. Point two, the answer. Point three, the interpretation. And point four, the application. Quite straightforward based upon what we see in our text. So let's consider first the question. And look with me again at verse one. David directs himself to the Lord and asks, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Well, that's straightforward enough, isn't it? David asks this question of the Lord, but it's important to contemplate its significance. Now, it is one question that is expressed to us in two forms. You probably have two question marks in your, the sentence as it's written in your Bible, who may abide in your tabernacle, question mark, who may dwell in your holy hill, but it's essentially one question that's asked in two different ways. The first expression, the first word that we notice in the text is the word Lord, and it's written out in your Bible, I'm sure the way that it is in mind, in all uppercase letters. Do you see that? L-O-R-D? That's a clue that our translators provide to us 
so that we may know what Hebrew word is behind the English word. If it's spelled or printed in this way with all uppercase letters, we know that the, the name that is used by David is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, or sometimes translated Jehovah. That's the old way. If you see it with a capital L and then a lowercase O-R-D, it's the Hebrew word Adonai, which is a more general term that could be used even in terms of human relationships. But when Lord, in all uppercase letters, is used for us, it is an indicator to us that David is speaking, contemplating the covenant name of God, the name by which he revealed himself only to his people, a name that was unknown to the nations around Israel. So this becomes a very personal and very appropriate question that is directed to the God who is the God of Israel. So David speaks to him, and he asks the question, who may abide, that is, who may take up permanent residency, who may come to you and live there, dwell with you. That's the verb that we'll see in just a moment. Who may come to your tabernacle and abide there? Now, this isn't the temple. The temple was not built until Solomon came along. But the tabernacle was the symbolic dwelling place of God under the old covenant. It was a tent, a movable tent, that was pitched among the nations, but it was the place in which God said, this is where I dwell. It was intended to be a, a place where people could look and they could see a representation of God himself. So the question, as it's expressed at the beginning here, is this, who may live in your presence? Who may come to the place where you manifest, where you demonstrate your presence among your people? Who may approach you and stay there? What are the qualifications of that person? Now, we have here an instance of what's called Hebrew parallelism. Question two follows along with uh, question one, and it provides to us a similar idea, but with different expressions. Now, the way that Hebrew parallelism works uh, it has been defined this way. A is what is stated in the first line, and then B is what is stated in the second line. And the way it's phrased is this, A, what's more B? That is, A tells us some things, B picks up the theme and moves it forward in one way or another. So now we don't have the tabernacle, we have the holy hill. We go from a specific place where God is worshipped to the entirety of the place where God manifests himself on earth. David is extending the picture for us. Who may dwell, who may abide on Mount Zion? You see, in the Bible, God dwells symbolically on the mountaintop. And Mount Zion was the greatest of all of the, the mountains in uh, what is now Israel. He dwelt symbolically on the mountaintop, and the tabernacle that was established to be a demonstration of God's presence was to occupy a high place. Those of you who've read the Old Testament will remember that oftentimes even the best kings failed and that they didn't remove the high places. That's because the pagan high places were a challenge to the one true God. He claimed the mountaintop for his own. Just turn over a few pages in your Bible with me to Psalm 42. It's a, it's a great illustration of what David is contemplating here. Um, I'm sorry, not Psalm 42, Psalm 48. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. 
in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled. They hastened away. Fear took hold of them there. And pain is as a woman in birth pangs, as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever and then that little Hebrew word, Selah. Now, do you see the point here? The, 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 the tabernacle, the holy hill, Mount Zion, is the place that God claims for his own. God dwells here. And so as David contemplates what he sees and the place to which the pilgrims are proceeding, he asks this question, who may take up residence with you? I try to picture this as if a throng is walking up the pathway to the top of the hill. And David is looking at them and he says, Lord, who? Which person? Who among the multitudes? Is it that woman? Is it that man? Is it that child? Who is it that has the right and proceeding to enter into your presence? You see, the question becomes really urgent, doesn't it? Because it's a question ultimately of eternal life of the worship of the one true God. And David's question here separates the true followers of the Lord from those who are hypocrites. Because dwelling or abiding is very different from visiting or from making an appearance at a place for effect. There are many people who involve themselves in religious actions hoping that others will see them and draw the conclusion that they are very spiritual people. David knows that kind of hypocrisy. And so he's asking the question about the one who has the right to come and stand in the presence of God to live with him. David knew that only some of those he was looking at ultimately had the right to abide in God's holy hill to come and dwell in his tabernacle. And so he thinks, he contemplates, he asks, who has the right to do so? Well, David proceeds to an answer. And verses 2 through 5 to provide to us an answer to the question that David is asking. Who may abide? Who may dwell? And his contemplation brings an answer. Now, if you look at the text very closely, you notice that it's interesting the way that David puts this together. He gives some positive answers, and he provides some negative responses, and there is a pattern to them. He speaks first about that which is positive, then he goes to a negative. Then he comes back to a positive, then he returns to a negative, each of them leading to a conclusion at the end of the psalm. So in response to David's question, who may approach to God and stay there, let's notice the first positive response that he gives. And David gives this in terms of actions. He uses three action verbs, to walk, to work, and to speak. Do you see that in your Bible in front of you? That's what is there. To walk. Um, let me go back to Psalm 15. He who walks uprightly. Now, the word walk here does not mean one's gait, movement from place to place, taking your foot and putting it there and the next foot and the next foot and the next foot, the next step on and on. That's not the case. Walk here is a metaphor for a description of lifestyle. 
whose life is characterized in a certain way, who is upright, whose lifestyle is one of holiness and integrity. That's the beginning of the response. The one who may dwell in God's holy hill is the one whose life is upright and holy and full of integrity and righteousness. The second verb that David uses here is a similar, he who works righteousness. He who does, who acts righteously. Now let's give this the full meaning that is intended here. Whose deeds are pleasing and acceptable to God. The one who may walk the pathway up the hill, come to the tabernacle of God and dwell there, is the one who does righteousness, who works righteousness, whose lifestyle is characterized by actions that are pleasing and acceptable to God. And then speaks the fruit of his lips. He speaks the truth in his heart. Now what's interesting about this is that the speech is not actually on the lips. The speech is in the heart. John Calvin, in his commentary, I think summarizes this very well when he says this. To speak in the heart is a strong figurative expression, but it expresses more forcibly David's meaning than if he had said from the heart, to speak from the heart. To speak in the heart is what he says. It denotes such agreement and harmony between the heart, the inward person, and the tongue as that the speech is, as it were, a vivid representation of the hidden affection or feeling within. That is, what we are on the inside comes out from our lips, is expressed by our lips, so that there is a, a consonance, an agreement between what we say and that which is present in our hearts. Calvin's right. That's exactly how this is to be understood. Now this answer, who may, uh, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill, it begins with a very high standard, does it not? To walk uprightly, to work righteousness, to speak the truth in the heart. Walk, work, speak in such a way that God himself approves. This leads David to the first negative response. Remember, he's answering the question. He's providing us with information so that we might know who the one is who may abide in the tabernacle and dwell in the holy hill. And it's interesting, if you look closely... The last line of verse 2 anticipates the first line of verse 3. We read, he speaks the truth in his heart, so it's about speaking. He who does not backbite with his tongue. Verse, the first part of verse 3 picks up the ending of verse 2, and the contrast is clear. One suggests the other and helps to define the other. See, David recognizes that one may speak kindly, to the face of another one while despising that person in the heart and then when in the absence of that person speak against him. That's hypocrisy, isn't it? To pretend or to take on a pretense that we are friends and that I like you and that I appreciate you but in my heart I'm boiling over against you and then when you walk out of the room I turn to the one next to me and say, I really can't stand that guy. David says, 
The one who may dwell in God's presence cannot do this. He will not do this. This is not the point. David continues on, and the next two lines maybe go back to what he's already said in verse 2. See, I think that there's an internal relationship between what he says in verse 2 and what he says in verse 3. There are positives and there are negatives. So if you look at the second line of verse 3, nor does evil to his neighbor, in some ways that has a relationship to the second line of verse 2. He works righteousness. Those need to be read together. It's a very common way that Hebrew poetry is put together, that you, you make some statements and then you reverse the order as you again make those statements. There's a relationship, an internal relationship with them. There's a bit of, of that that we see here in this place. So that in, in verse 3, he doesn't do evil to his neighbor because he works righteously. And the, la- the third part of verse 3, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, probably has something to give definition to what it means to, wor- to walk uprightly. You see, to do these things is to have an absence of the sins in our lives. You know, really what David is saying here in verse 2 and 3 is this. The one who has the right to dwell, to abide in the tabernacle of God, to come to his holy hill and live there, is the one who loves his neighbor as himself. It's the second great commandment. The one who loves his neighbor and who outwardly towards his neighbor does that which is upright and does that which is righteous and speaks the truth and doesn't backbite, doesn't do evil to his neighbor, doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. He loves his neighbor as himself. He qualifies to take up residence forever in the presence of God. This leads us in verse 4 to the second positive statement. David goes back to speak positively characteristics that are present in this one's life. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own heart and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. I kept reading into the negatives. The first part of verse 4, the first two lines belong together. David wants us to understand that the one who has the right to abide in God's presence is a discerning person. He is able to distinguish between people. Now, if you're like me, as you're reading through Psalm 15, I find the first part of verse 4 a little bit surprising. To say that a positive characteristic of the one who may dwell in the presence of the Lord is someone who despises others. Didn't we just say that this is about loving your neighbor as yourself? But there is a righteous way to despise someone. The person who is able to dwell in God's presence despises a vile person. That is a person whose lifestyle, whose lips characterize or are are so opposed to the righteousness of God that he's like poison in whatever community he, he joins, whatever place he is, and he leads others astray. This is a person who takes someone who is righteous and finds a way to manipulate that person so that now no longer are they pursuing righteousness, they're pursuing evil. And David says the one who has the right to abide in God's tabernacle is the one who sees through that person and despises those actions. We see examples of this many times in Scripture. I think immediately about the way that the Lord Jesus interacted with the scribes and the Pharisees. 
who were preventing people from entering into the kingdom of God by their misrepresentation. Now, when David says he despises the vile person, but he honors those who fears the Lord, he's got a, a high level of discernment. And he's able to look at people whose lifestyles are characterized by a genuine love and reverence for the Lord their God, who demonstrate by their words and their actions that they are devoted to him. And because he is able to see these people, he recognizes that they are to be honored. The deciding factor between those who are vile and those who are honored, those who fear the Lord, is how these people walk towards God. See, that's what the difference is. And so David here, in a poetic fashion, is presenting to us the first great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, because he has already spoken to us about loving your neighbor as yourself. The third part of verse 4 picks up the relationship between heart and word. The man who may dwell in the Lord's house is one who keeps his word. That is, when he swears, when he makes promises, he will carry through, he will follow through on the word that he has spoken, even when it means that he hurts himself. Maybe he didn't think through all of the implications of the commitment that he made, but he spoke these words, he made a promise, he made a commitment, and he will follow through whatever it may cost him to do. He's willing to do that. There's, there's a level of honesty in this person. And so the one who has the right to abide or to dwell on the holy hill of God in his tabernacle is the one who is discerning with regard to people and their relationship to the Lord and one who will speak truthfully whatever circumstances, uh, whenever he speaks a word of promise, he will commit himself to do those things. Verse 5 picks up the second set of negatives. It describes the man's use of his money. This really gets down to some of the, the most important issues of life, at least from our perspective. Now, there's a word that David uses in verse 5 that we don't use very much in our um, language today. He who does not put out his money at usury. We might ask, we ought to ask, what is usury? Well, there's a couple of different ways that I think helpfully define this for us. The most simple is that usury is the abuse of the poor by those who are rich. It's the abuse of the poor by those who are rich. Let me expand on that a little bit. It means taking advantage of others by excessive rates of interest or other means of financial gain. In fact, if you have an ESV, if that's what you have in front of you, it doesn't say usury, it says interest. Taking advantage of others. When you are in a position to give them assistance, you charge them excessive rates of interest or you use them for your own financial gain. Another way to, to, to describe this, usury is keeping the poor in poverty by the abuse of financial relations. You know, the scriptures tell us that we are to aid the poor, we are to help the poor, the genuinely poor. We're to watch out for them and protect them and help them and give them comfort. But you know and I know from the world around us that there are many who are like vultures and will do everything that they can to prey on the poor and fill their own purses. That's what David is describing here. The one who has the right 
to stand in God's presence, to abide in the tabernacle, is the one who will not do this to the downtrodden, who will not take advantage of his ability to fatten his purse because of them. And then the the second thing that he says in verse 5, this person will not take a bribe, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. You know what a bribe is? It's It's buying a person to lie. That's what a bribe is. He cannot be bought for the sake of lies. Not only is is he one who will not take financial advantage, but he (coughs) he will not oppress the innocent and protect the guilty from deserved punishment. That's what a bribe does. See, it oppresses the innocent. Someone who has not committed the crime, who has not done such and such a deed, But there is one present who has done these deeds by taking a bribe and speaking a lie. He puts the innocent in a position where they will be counted as guilty and he allows the guilty to escape free, the one who deserved punishment. This is false testimony. This is a violation of the ninth of the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness. David says, the one who is able to stand in God's presence will not do this. Do you remember Paul's words? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, he said, and this is one of those frequently misquoted texts of Scripture. You've heard it sometimes, probably on TV, money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's not what the text says. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. For which, Paul says, some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I don't like my life. I think I can find some ways by which I can increase my wealth and I can make myself more comfortable, and so I will take advantage of others. David says, the man who can abide in God's presence will not do so. And that leads us to the conclusion in verse 5 at the very end. Look at it in your Bibles. He who does these things shall never be moved. He who does them He whose lifestyle is characterized by these things will remain in the Lord's presence forever. Because the Lord cannot be moved, so those who do these things cannot and will not be removed. Pardon me. I I need to use my cane because I've got some balance issues and this helps me to stand up, so forgive me. And When I let it go, sometimes it wobbles and I have to rescue it. Now, I hope you agree with me that this is a really high standard, isn't it? It really is. And so we ought to ask the question, what should we make of it? What, what do we think of Psalm 15? Well, let me, let me ask you this question. Does this psalm encourage you? Does it encourage you? If you apply it carefully to yourself, in all honesty... Do you qualify to dwell in God's holy hill? Read it again. Let me read it again for you. You put yourself into Psalm 15, or you use it to analyze yourself. Lord, may I abide in your tabernacle? May I dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, 
He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved, O Lord. That's not me. I don't do these things. There's a traditional interpretation of Psalm 15. It's based upon a false idea of what the church is about. But it presents this psalm as a means of distinguishing between the sheep and the goats, or between the wheat and the tares in the church. It sees the visible church as a mixture of the two, Pardon me. While the invisible church, that is the true church, consists only of those who are described in the psalm. So the traditional interpretation basically says those who belong, really belong in the church, are those who are described in Psalm 15. And they say hypocrites live one way, the faithful live another way, and because they live another way, because they live a holy way, they may dwell in God's holy hill. And if you were to take a look at most commentaries on Psalm 15, not all of them, but most of them, that's the interpretation that you will find. I think it is soul-crushing interpretation. So I must disagree with this interpretation. Now, maybe the easiest, and perhaps it's the most obvious reading of the text, but I want to give you several reasons why it's incorrect. So follow along with me and think with me here. Now, the first reason that we need to disagree with that traditional interpretation is by looking at the context of the surrounding psalms. Now, let me, let me say this. Oftentimes, it's easy when reading the book of Psalms, 150 psalms, to think that they are just arranged so that there are 150, and they often don't have relationship to each other. Sometimes they do. When you're reading the Songs of Ascents, those 15 psalms, you know that they must be related to each other because they all have the same superscription, a Song of Ascents. But for the most part, the rest of them are just put together and we read them in isolation. I want to suggest to you that that's a bad way to read the book of Psalms. And that whoever put it together, I, I think a good case could be made for Ezra the, Ezra the scribe. The psalms cover a period of about a thousand years. The oldest one is Psalm 90, a psalm of Moses, the man of God. The newest or the most recent psalm is Psalm 137, which speaks, uh, uh, 135 and 137, which speak about the exile and what happens after the exile. That's a period of about a thousand years. And Ezra, the priest, Ezra the scribe, after return from Babylon, is the most likely candidate for have put together the psalms, and he did so purposely. There's a a, a logic, a rationale to the presence of these psalms. And so I want you to look with me at the context of Psalm 15 so that we could answer this question. Is it telling us that the one who works righteousness is the one who stands before God in, in, uh, in his holy tabernacle? Just turn back a page or maybe glance across the page in your Bible to Psalm 12. What do we see as we look at Psalms leading up to Psalm 15? Psalm 12, to the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a Psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. 
For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. That's not very hopeful, is it? Psalm 14, the immediately preceding psalm. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Then we turn to Psalm 15. David asks the question, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He's just told us that there's no one who qualifies. Psalm 16, immediately following. A miktam of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you've said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Where does David know that his goodness comes from? Is it because he has done the things of Psalm 15? Because they've characterized his life. He walks uprightly, he works righteousness, he speaks the truth in his heart, he doesn't backbite, he doesn't do evil, etc. Is David examining himself in Psalm 16 and saying, I've done these things, I have goodness? He says, the only goodness, the only righteousness that I have is a righteousness that has been given to me by God. It's not that I qualify. Now, somebody, I, I can hear someone saying, well, brother, don't you realize that this psalm is about relative righteousness? It's not absolute righteousness. It's relative righteousness. That is, the deeds of a godly believer is over against the hypocrite. Well, we might be able to read the psalm that way. Let's look at Psalm 17. 17.3. You've tested my heart. You visited me in the night. You've tried me and have found nothing. I have purpose that my mouth shall not transgress. David is able to at least claim a certain amount of um, innocence in some ways with regard to the Lord. So somebody might say, well, you know, Psalm 15 needs to be understood in light of, of text like Psalm 17.3. That's in the context, isn't it? Well, yeah, but let's keep reading in Psalm 17. You've tested my heart, you've visited me in the night, you've tried me and have found nothing. I purpose that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I've kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. Even there, when David is able, in some ways, to protest his innocence, what does he do? He asks for God's sustaining grace to keep him in the way. He knows that he's not righteous in himself. He knows that anything that's good in his life comes to him from the Lord. That's my first reason. In the context, we have explicit statements that deny that there's anybody who qualifies. Here's my second one. Look again at Psalm 15. Think of the question and think of the conclusion. I want to read verse 1, and I want to read the last line of verse 5. They they sort of act as the, the sandwich for the rest of the psalm. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who does these things shall never be moved. Who may abide? Who may dwell? Who will never be moved? And here, in light of that last objection that was given to us, I ask the question, are these relative terms? 
Is this speaking about relative righteousness where David can protest a certain amount of innocence in certain circumstances? No, they are not. In Psalm 15, David is speaking about qualifications for permanent residence in God's presence. So I ask the question, is there anyone who can do these things to qualify to live before the Lord? It's a third reason why we ought to disagree with the traditional interpretation. Look at a key phrase in verse 15. The second line of verse 2, I'm sorry, Psalm 15, verse 2. Notice the second line of that psalm. He works righteousness. Works righteousness. I know that we usually employ this as a noun. We speak of works righteousness. That is the claim that my deeds qualify me to be in the presence of God. Here it's a verb. But in the King James Version, in the New King James Version, in the New American Standard Bible, it's translated for us as works righteousness. And it ought to jump out at us. Because it's a form of that commandment that comes with the law of Moses, do this and live. He works righteousness. Do this and live. So I ask you the question, is this how we stand in God's presence? On the basis of what we do? It's getting uncomfortable, isn't it? (laughs) Is he always like this? Even when he's preaching, he probably does this, right, to himself, yeah. I I teach my students to ignore... um, What's, what's the word I'm looking for? Hecklers. Thank you. So we need to ignore the heckler. You see, the traditional interpretation of Psalm 15 leads to discouragement and shame and doubt. And it ought to. Who can abide these things? Who can fulfill these things? Who can do these things? Or to put it in the language that David uses, who may abide in the Lord's tabernacle? Who may dwell in his holy hill? Can you? Can you? Do you qualify? I would suggest to you that there's a better interpretation of Psalm 100, of Psalm 15. And David is not here writing to promote introspection and discouragement. Rather, David writes prophetically in order to turn us away from ourselves. In fact, David does describe someone who performs these things, someone who works righteousness, someone who earns the right to dwell in God's holy hill. And so we ought to ask the question, David, of whom are you speaking? Who is this one? You know, David himself gives us answers. Listen to these words that he writes elsewhere in the book of Psalms. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Or how about this one from Psalm 2? I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. And especially, turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 provides to us the interpretation, the inspired interpretation of Psalm 15. Let me read this for you. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. 
The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. That's, that's God's claim to be sovereign over all of the world that he has created. Okay, that's his claim. Verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? That's the same question we see at the beginning of Psalm 15, isn't it? Maybe phrased a little bit differently, but it's the same question. Let's, let's not you know, quibble over the words. Let's recognize that the intent is the same. What's the answer? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Selah. Pause. The answer is pretty similar too, isn't it? But Psalm 24 doesn't end there. Because Psalm 24 goes on. And Psalm 24 says some amazing things as it goes on. It's made a claim of the Lord's sovereignty. It has asked the question. It has given us an answer very similar to Psalm 15. But then it goes beyond what Psalm 15 says in these words. Lift up your heads, O you gates. And be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up your everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Do you see what David is saying here? He, as he asks the question about who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, he's not simply thinking about the tabernacle in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, but he's recognizing that it is a, a representation on earth of a greater tabernacle that is in heaven. And when he asks the question, who may ascend, he answers it by saying, it is the Lord himself who may ascend. This is, this is glorious language because it's the language of a building in heaven, gates of the building, and the gates are opened up, the doors are opened up, and the king of glory and all of his majesty enters in. He's the one who has the right to come. He's the one who is able to enter into the kingdom and abide there, to stay there, to make it his own. Verses 7 and 8 express the glorious entrance of the one who enters and dwells, who reigns on God's holy hill. When David says in Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Or in Psalm 2, I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Psalm 24 describes to us the entrance by which he comes in all of his glory and all of his majesty. You see, Psalm 24 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the kingship of Messiah. And friends, Psalm 15 must be understood in the same way. Jesus Christ, our Lord, has completely and perfectly satisfied all the acts of righteousness that are described in Psalm 15. This is not about you. This is about Christ. This is about the one who abides in God's tabernacle and dwells in his holy hill of Zion. The title for the sermon, which I got to your pastor too late to be on your, your page there, is simply, Who is this man? And the answer is, it is Jesus Christ, it's not us. Now, we were discouraged 20 minutes ago, weren't we? 
You see, when we read Psalm 15 and see ourselves in it, it becomes law. It's a psalm of law because it reminds us that we can't do these things. When applied to us, it's all about law. But when we read it in the light of the rest of the Bible, especially Psalm 24, it becomes all gospel because we see Jesus Christ. And we know that he is the one who has entered into heaven because he is the one who fulfills all of these characteristics. He is the one who lived righteously. And so when you come to Psalm 15, you must see Christ. And you must recognize that it's not about you, and it's not about striving towards a goal that God will accept you in one way or another. Rather, it's about your trust and dependence upon him because he alone is righteous. My friend, you must find your righteousness solely in him. So I would urge you, don't be discouraged by Psalm 15. It is meant to cause you to look to Christ. Because as you apply it to yourself, you know you can't do these things. And if it's the only qualification, the only way by which qualification can be determined for the one who would enter into God's presence on his holy hill forever and ever, you know that it condemns you. But when you see Christ there as the one who perfectly satisfies everything that is described in Psalm 15, you can say, I put my trust in him. I will depend on him. I will forsake my own works because they're worthless. But Christ has done it all. And if I trust in him and lean on him, if I depend on him, God will accept me. And I will forever be able to dwell in his presence. Not by my works, but by the works of the Savior. You see, David understood this. In Psalm 16, if we keep our thoughts about the context of the psalm, we notice some things. For example, verse 8. David says, Psalm 16, 8, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. That's the same language that we find at the end of Psalm 15. The one who does these things shall never be moved because I trust in the Lord. I shall not be moved. And David can go on and say, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you see Christ here? And do you trust in him? And will you forsake your own righteousness? This is really good news. See, when it's law, it's really bad news. It makes us hopeless. But when we see Christ, it's really good news. (laughs) Because it means that I don't have to do those things. I don't have to satisfy God's demands of righteousness. He gave his son, and his son did those things for us. That's the gospel in Psalm 15. Now, let me keep going with application. Having said that, don't fall prey to antinomianism. Don't think that because of who Christ is and what Christ has done, then I don't have to worry about the way that I live. We don't work, we don't live our lives righteously in order to gain God's favor but because he has given us his grace and mercy and forgiven our sins, 
We ought to seek to live a righteous life in this world. And now Psalm 15 becomes a help to us because it describes to us the things that we ought to do, not so that we earn God's favor, but because we love him. If you love me, keep my commandments. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to, when we read Psalm 15, we need to say on the one hand, it's very discouraging because it's about, it shows me that what I can't do, and then it becomes the gospel to me when I see Christ there, and my faith is strengthened and encouraged, and then it becomes to me a means by which I can identify a way that I live because he has given me salvation. We can never earn our, uh, his favor, and the righteous works that we do after we come to faith likewise don't earn his favor, but they demonstrate to him that we love him. And so, as described in the psalm, I urge you to live a holy life if you're a believer. Take these things seriously. Think and speak the truth. When you make a commitment, when you make a promise, when you take an oath, when you sign a contract, even if it hurts you, keep going. Follow through. Let your lips reflect the truth of your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God's people. And when you see a vile person, despise that vile person. Glorifies God to despise him. You know, I, I can think of famous people who have died. You ever notice that everybody who dies is a nice person? And I remember when Hugh Hefner died and all the praises that were in the media for him. And I thought, no, 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 no. Unless somehow, in a way that we don't know, he came to faith in Christ when he died, he's in the worst possible condition one could ever imagine. And there's no praise that ought to be given for his lifestyle and the influence that he had on Western society. He was a vile person so far as we know. We ought to despise him. But love God's people. Discern between good and evil. Despise all evil. Dear Christian sister or brother, love the Lord above all. Set him before you, as David does in Psalm 16. So let me conclude with this question. Do you trust your own righteousness? You know, I, I think that it would be hard for anyone here today who's been paying attention, not to my words, but simply to Psalm 15, to say, yeah, you know, I think that I can do this, or that I have done this, that I'll continue to do it, and when I die, I'll open my eyes, and God will say, nice job. Welcome. No, if you trust your own righteousness, you will fail. But if you'll trust in Jesus Christ, I can promise you that you will abide in God's holy hill forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you've taken us to the depths and to the heights in Psalm 15. As we have read it honestly and applied it to ourselves, we know that we are not this person. And yet when we see that there is one who did do all of these things, who lived a life of righteousness, and then who died a death as if he were a sinner to endure your punishment that was due to us. We are exhilarated in your mercy and your grace and your kindness. We thank you for giving to us our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Thank you for being truthful with us and showing us who we really are and how much we need a Savior. We pray that if there are any present who have not yet come to faith in Christ, that they would hear this good news and that they would trust in him, not in their own works, but trust in him. So thank you for your holy word and your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.